Welcome back to Friends and Neighbors, a podcast in which I continue a conversation begun by children's television icon Fred Rogers in my PBS documentary, Mr. Rogers and Me. Each week, I talk with friends and neighbors about how they're endeavoring towards depth and simplicity despite an often shallow and complex world. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and today, New York Times columnist and best-selling author Ron Lieber. When I was younger, I thought achievement was a destination, and when I got there, I'd be happy. I defined my future in stark absolutes. I'm sad now, and I'll be happy then. But when I got there, nothing really changed. I was still often sad, and increasingly happy and sad at the same time. For the last two decades, I've returned to my friend Ron over and over to tease at the edges of this sweet and sour experience, as Cameron Crowe once described it to me. Yes, that was a name drop. I met Ron, who is always on the hunt for stories and sources, when, as part of his beat, he spotted the plane on my crash site album and emailed me out of the blue. Does this have anything to do with airline rewards travel, he asked. It didn't, but we soon found that we had a lot in common. We're the same age. Well, Ron has a week on me. We both grew up in Chicago. We're both journalists and we both love music. And over the years, as we grabbed lunch and took in rock shows, it became apparent to me that in Ron, I had someone I could count on for reasoned, thoughtful conversations about hard things. To say nothing about delicious things, no one's introduced me to more secret New York foodie spots than Ron. Ron and his wife Jody Cantor won half of the Pulitzer Prize winning team to break the wine scene story and spark the Me Too movement are journalism rock stars of the highest order. So where younger me would have expected their life to be all treasure and plumes, their pragmatic, humble, workaday approach reminds me that all of us live in a very real world full of nuance, complexity, highs and lows and middles. Ron knows sweet and sour. Last winter, he lost his father to a long battle with ALS on the same day that his third book, The Price You Pay for College, entered the New York Times bestseller list. When Ron and I finally found a minute for this conversation, he'd just completed another Herculean achievement, just four weeks after finishing his first marathon, 26.2 miles through the streets of his beloved sweet home Chicago, and raising tens of thousands of dollars for ALS research in his dad's memory. Ron ran the New York City Marathon, to boot. Dude, congratulations. Thank you. You're insane. You're truly insane. I mean, this was sort of a bonkers thing to do, I guess. I mean, I'd done it once. I put all this training in, you know, I, yeah. I, I didn't feel like I'd left it all on the table. I wasn't injured. So why not? <laughs> How do you feel about it now? Are you thinking about Miami in January? I will confess to having looked at the Honolulu situation in four weeks, um, but I, I, I just can't. Honolulu is, you know, not a hop, skip, uh, and a jump. I just love that you looked, though. There are people who do it without training as much, but I, I just wouldn't do that because the chance of injuring yourself, you know, doing it without enough training, yeah. particularly at my age and my size. I, you know, I feel like is not small. There's nothing keeping me from trying to, you know, lower my half marathon time or, you know, running wacko races like beta breakers or whatever. My experience with marathons is if there are 30,000 runners, there are 30,000 stories, right? 
how does this achievement of two marathons in six or eight weeks? Four weeks. There you go. <laughs> what does it say about your story? I think it's a different story. It, it changes the narrative in a way that's not small. And that was part of the point, right? I was a halfway decent high school basketball player at a private school. There was a point at the age of 16, I was, you know, the 12th best Jewish basketball player, age 16 or under in the greater Chicagoland area, who knew to a try out for um, the Maccabi International Youth Games, which were being hosted in Chicago that summer. You know, I made the team by the skin of my teeth. And that was probably the, uh, you know, peak of my basketball playing experience. I was larger than average person who, you know, could take up space and hit people. (laughs) Um, uh, (laughs) And, you know, that's not how I think of you, by the way. Yeah, no, at all. Right. pretty aggressive. But that was kind of the (laughs) peak of my athletic career, as far as I could tell. And then I was, you know, kind of a sporadic worker outer in my 20s and 30s. And then one day in my early 40s, when I was getting started with a book project back in 2013, there was this flurry of people on social media signing up for the Brooklyn Half Marathon. Uh, And I thought, wow, you know, I've had a couple decades of, you know, moderate to severe back issues. And you know, this just might be bad for me, but I also need something to do to get my mind off the writing. So, you know, I'm going to take a shot at it. And it turns out I could do it. I wasn't very fast, but I could do it. And then I did it again the next year. And, you know, like any of us who live in New York City for a period of time, you know, you go out and you watch the marathon each November and, you know, the city comes alive and it's incredibly mm-hmm. moving, right? It really yeah, is. Yeah, right. You know, you, you probably remember the race uh, in 2001. You might have even run in it. I did. Yeah. yeah. And then we lost the marathon last year to the pandemic. And I thought, you know what? I'm turning 50. You know, my dad is dying and he, he finally did let go in February after five years battling ALS. My sister uh, runs a charitable organization in Chicago that helps match cancer patients up with cancer mentors, basically people who have been through the ringer before and come out the other side. And she has, you know, dozens of of bibs for fundraisers. And so I thought, all right, I'm going to go home to Chicago right after my 50th birthday and run it in my dad's honor and, you know, raise a shit pile of money. And just go out and get it done. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But, you know, the closer I got to fundraising time, the clearer it became that my body was actually capable of doing this. Unless I got hurt, there was no reason to think I wouldn't be able to pull it off on one of the flattest major marathon courses that's out there. And so I did. I raised $30,000. I finished in Chicago on a very humid day. And a couple of days later, I thought, well, okay, I can probably get a bib for New York. And why not, after four and a half months of training, take a shot at a better weather day and see what happens. And so the moral of the story is that as many years as I have been spending doing really hard things with my brain, you know, trying to Mm. give people advice about their financial lives, about, you know, super impactful, important stuff in the pages of the New York Times, where, you know, if you slip up at all, everyone will know. Um, And, you know, the stakes are reasonably high, both professionally and, and, you know, for the readers. (laughs) Reasonably. Right. Yes, reasonably. You know, writing books on the side and parenting 
you know, with a spouse who does even more impactful work for the New York Times. You know, I could do all that, but I hadn't really tested myself physically in a long yeah. time, if ever. And I wasn't sure I could do it. And I wanted to try. What is your experience now on the other side of being like, I just did a physical achievement. How does that inform achievement broadly and intellectual specifically? I mean, I'm still mostly just kind of reveling in the physical accomplishment. Yeah, you're still in it. And, you know, I I mean, I I ran super slowly, but I can feel proud of that, right? Because I ran within my limits. I did it twice in four weeks, which, you know, most people, (laughs) even really good athletes, you know, don't attempt. I advised otherwise, didn't I? Uh, you know, if you did, I, I've forgotten that already because um, <laughs> because I ignored you, if, if that was the case. That's right. Well, I think I said that's when I got injured is when I did New York to Miami. Ah, okay. Which, by the way, I'm sure I was injured well before that, but in my mind's eye, that's when like I tipped in terms of my own restraint. Yeah. You know? You just said something interesting, which is that you can be proud that you did it within limits. Like you understood thresholds and boundaries in a way that I don't know you one does at the same when you're 26, you know, or 23. You know, a consistent theme of my adult existence is the fact that I never don't feel time constrained and mm. I'm still not convinced that that is the best or the third best or the fifth best way to go through life to live. Right. But, you know, life is glorious, right? The world is a big place and there is so much to do and to read and to see and to eat and to listen to that brings profound joy. And, you know, we only have so many years on the planet. And I happen to be someone of, you know, eclectic and broad tastes. And I want to do it all. (laughs) <laughs> I want to do all of it. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, and I, I, so, I see yeah. no reason not to try. And trying hard has not yet done any real damage to myself, to my family, to my work. And so I guess this was just another way, you know, to see how far I could stretch it without coming close to the breaking point. And this mm-hmm. didn't actually push me close to the breaking point. What is the achievement all about? Like, why would we, and I'm saying this as a we, cause I do this. Why would I set an absurd goal, achieve the absurd goal, and then set another absurd goal almost immediately? I wonder what drives it. I wonder what drives it in me. I don't know that I've spent the proper amount of time examining it because I sort of like that about myself and, and yeah, I like it in that? other people, right? I think part of the reason I was attracted to you as a friend, you know, when we first ran into one another on the internet was that I saw some of you in me, but you had Mm -hmm. done the one thing that I had always wanted to and still want to and, and nags at me, which is that, you know, you took some kind of innate musical talent and really did something with it. And that is maybe my biggest regret in terms of things to reach for and search for. I could have taken that path or added that path in high school when I quit piano lessons after 10 years or any time in high school and college when I was singing and done more with it. I didn't realize that you view that as kind of like a gap or a thing that you hadn't achieved. Because as far as I'm concerned, 
whatever I can do to help you achieve that, you know, it'd be my pleasure. Yeah. I got your back in any way I can. I'll play for you. I'll <laughs> help you build the band. I'll give you the stage. Play Essential Fest 2022. Come on. Thank be you. amazing. Yeah. How long did you really relish your achievement in Chicago at, after the finish line before your head started pivoting into the next scenario of, well, I could also do this. Like, was it hours, minutes? I think it was, you know, maybe 24 to 48 hours. I knew enough to, to revel in it and to feel great about the fact that I had done it. And, you know, I was proud of the fact that I raised $30,000 for Immerman Angels, which is my sister's organization. But I think what I was seeking there is a sense of triumphant exaltation after a really difficult year, you know, with my dad and a difficult year and a half with the pandemic and family life. I just wanted to feel 100% amazing. And I didn't feel that in Chicago, you know, maybe because mm-hmm. I went out too fast or maybe because of the weather, maybe it was just not my day. And I had a hunch that that was out there and that there was a decent chance that on a 50 degree day with the sun shining in New York City, I could seize hold of it. And that's what it was. And it worked. Describe the north side of Chicago in and around, I don't know. 1982, 1983, 1980. Oh, wow. I mean, what a great place to grow up. I mean, there's something special about growing up in a city in general where, you know, kids can navigate on their own without carpools and begging parents um, for rides and all of that. There was a pretty good city bus system and my parents were reasonably you know, liberal with the rules. And, you know, the first place I was ever allowed to go by myself was Wrigley Field, which was five blocks west of where we live. And you starting around age 10 or 11 or 12, I would head out at, you know, nine or 10 in the morning during the summer with a $5 bill. And that was enough (laughs) to sit in really good seats in the right field grandstand, you know, before the, the Cubs were any good, kind of down the right field line. And then from there, it wasn't long until we were sneaking into rock clubs with, you know, fake IDs and going to Medusa's, which was the sort of legendary under 18 dance party that was also within walking distance of my house, you know, as was the Cubby Bear, where all sorts of great bands played and the Wild Hair singing Armadillo Sanctuary, which was the main reggae bar. We would all sort of sneak out on on Monday nights and, uh, you know, go there during senior year in high school. And it was just epic. Right. I mean, I could not have asked for a better introduction to adult life. I was really in it for the music and, again, the sort of triumphant exaltation of just getting in and being there and reveling in the moment. You know, there's a high that comes from those peak moments. And, you know, they can Mm -hmm. occur at the symphony, they can occur at a, you know, dead show or a fish show, they can occur you know, at a ska or reggae show. And, and, you know, I can remember so many of those. It really strikes me as a really unique proposition to have a city that size in that place up against that lake. And I'm just wondering how you think of that or how, what your experience with like the sort of Chicago land temperament or Chicago and in the world, what are the attributes? There's a little more mellowness than you find in New Yorkers, mm. a sort of slower pace. I would say Chicagoans are maybe not 
quite as quick-witted or at least as quick-spoken, but there's a heartfelt kind of hominess to mm-hmm. that place. The people there have their own charms. and It's separate and distinct from a lot of the people that I spend time with in New York, but I don't know. Somehow I've managed to make it work in both places. That's a nice transition to um, the Parker School. Tell me a little bit about the place. It sounds like real formative component of how you view the world. I mean, one of the key tenets is community and citizenship, which is like, in a way, you in a nutshell. Well, thank you for that. I'm very much of a, a product of that place. You know, there's a danger as a New York Times employee in the newsroom in particular, that you come to think that your middle name is New York Times columnist, that that mm. is your uh, <laughs> primary identity in the world. And I've always resisted that. It's dangerous, right? Because once you become convinced that that is who you are and what you're about, it becomes very difficult to leave or imagine yourself doing anything else that can mm-hmm. that can make you as happy. And I think, you know, more than anything else, I'm a Parker kid. Um, you know, I was a Parker kid from kindergarten to 12th grade for 14 years. Wow. Um, you know, it's a, a progressive private school in Chicago. You know, back in the day, it was slightly less money than it is now, I think. I was there both as a full payer and on financial aid when, you know, my parents' marriage busted up and we sort of hit the skids financially for a while. You know, that financial aid from Parker is still the most generous thing that anyone has ever done for me. You know, it was a real possibility that we could have been evicted for lack of ability to pay. And the fact that the board of trustees rallied around our family because they felt like we gave more than we took from the place was just an incredible act of, I think, confidence more than anything else that, you know, we were on a trajectory, not just to, you know, do good things at the school, but to go out in the world as ambassadors for what that education represented on the proscenium over the the main stage in the school's auditorium. It says a school should be a model home, a complete community and an embryonic democracy. And I've always loved mm. that, you know, and uh, another yeah. one of the school's mottos was, you know, kind of everything to help and nothing to hinder. And those mm. things stayed with me. I literally grew up to be a service journalist, right? I make journalism yeah, yeah, yeah. that is in service to the world. And I don't think it's a coincidence, right, that, <laughs> that I came from a place like Francis Parker, where, where that stuff was sort of pressed into me. Who modeled it? Like who really showed you? you know, who walked the walk in a way that really stuck for you? Anybody? Barnaby Dinges was our seventh grade history teacher and also our basketball coach. And you know, he had an incredible backstory, which I, I eventually wrote about in the Times. He eventually left teaching for journalism school and you know, did journalism for a while, eventually became a, a sort of public affairs specialist. But during his time in journalism, I remember a couple of things that have never left me. He once wrote a story for the Chicago Reader, which is, you know, the alternative newspaper in Chicago. It was a stunt piece. They were opening a new White Castle, and Barnaby decided that he was going to do a story about eating the very first slider off the new grill at the new White Castle. And it was just (laughs) glorious. I mean, it was just beautiful writing and hysterically funny. And the genius of it, you know, was in the idea. Right. And I remember him telling me years later when he was out of journalism, he said, you know, 
Ron Dog. That's what he used to call me, Ron Dog. I love it. You know, it. he said, I still think of ideas like that sometimes. And the joy comes from just knowing that I could still do it if I wanted to. Mm, mm-hmm. And if there's anything that, you know, I am phenomenal at, I am exceptionally good at generating new ideas for journalism, stunt mm. pieces in particular, when doing them with just a little bit of both pissiness and irreverence. And I don't know that I would have learned to do it the same way, you know, without Barnaby Dinges or, um, you know, that. without Edward Felsenthal and Eben Shapiro at the Wall Street Journal. One of the things that's always struck me as a hallmark of your work And in fact, I always talk about you as an example of this when I'm trying to explain how this works. When you're talking old journalism was, I stand on a mountain and I tell you what's what, and then I disappear, right? And contemporary, or I don't know, 20 years ago, journalism is you have a dialogue with an audience and you're crowdsourcing and working with them and collaborating and asking for their help. And you're truly someone I point to as a great example of that because you've just done it so beautifully and effortlessly. How do you think of that? And how do you think of the audience of your relationship with them? And what have you learned from them with them? I don't know what would have become of me in another era. And maybe I would have just, you know, been better at, you know, building a source file of all the world's experts. But I'd like to think that I have a stronger relationship with my readers than anyone else. And, you know, when I think about Mm -hmm you know, some of my books and a lot of my most favorite columns and feature stories over the years, they've come from everyday people. Comment number 612 on a column of mine um, or somebody who just appears in the inbox or I see something on Twitter or I catch, you know, an idle comment on Facebook and I'm like that. There's a germ of something great there. And, you know, there's a certain amount of of skill or, or, or maybe it's even art, you know, in identifying that. But again, you know, like Barnaby Dinch has said, the joy is in finding the idea. And quite often, it's the idea that's the thing. And I've been doing this long enough now where, you know, the execution is not secondary. I mean, there's a huge difference between an A-plus, you know, column and, and a B-plus column. But I almost always know that, you know, once the idea there is there, that I can execute it somehow. But so many of those ideas don't come from my own head. And I don't know how I would have done it, you know, without readers to to lean on. And, you know, maybe it's because they saw something in me, right? They see a soul in my writing or generosity and and openness and caring. I'd like to think Mm -hmm. that I I, I brought, yeah, empathy. I'd, I'd like to think that I broadcast that. In at least I think you some do. way, you know, almost every time out. But in broadcasting it, it just means more seekers of help or answers find their way to me. And I just keep learning from that. I don't know what I'd do without it, frankly. You have a, a deep relationship year after year after year with young students who are applying to college and you publish some of the best ones. And I, nine times out of 10, find myself choked up. I mean, me too. It's it's one of the most incredible things that I get to do. And this too started with, you know, an idle remark from a friend uh, um, yeah. who, you know, worked in 
college counseling and college admissions. And she'd seen that I, you know, start, was starting to write about um, student loans a lot, 2009, 2010, you know, during that epic recession. And she reached out and she said, you know, it's interesting. You know, we're seeing more and more college application essays for colleges that demand them that are about money or work or social class or struggle in a way that's, you know, sort of specifically pecuniary, right? Um, Mm. Money was just showing up more. People were less afraid to write about it because many families had way less of it at that point. And I thought, you know, I'd like to read some of those. And then Mm -hmm. I was like, wait a second. I could do that, right? I could, yeah. I could ask for those things. Um, and what would happen if I did? And how many would come over the transom? And would they let me actually publish them? And sure enough, they would. And it worked. And every year, more of them showed up. And, you know, I publish four or five each year. And each year feels like they are um, better than the last. And I meet the mm-hmm. most extraordinary young people and like you, I find myself bursting into tears at least once or twice yeah. each year. These things are so, you know, profound and moving. What's your mechanism for identifying and sort of evaluating and selecting ideas in any capacity? This is related to the achievement question, the marathon question. Like, I'm interested, like, what happens with you and an idea? I think there's like a hyperactivity to the that part of my brain. I mean, it helps to be intensely curious about the world to, you know, read every section of the newspaper. I still get a lot of my best ideas from the 14th paragraph of some Wall Street Journal story that they didn't think was worthy of attention. You know, the thing that I thought was most important for me, at least, and for my readers, you know, was the thing they kind of buried down in the bottom in passing. And so there's a part of your brain that is always always seeking it, right? So it's in the conversations Mm. you have with strangers and it's in the conversations you have with intimates and it's in everything you read. And I think the more eclectic your tastes, the more likely you are um, to seize on things that are a a little unusual. You know, I like to think that, you know, I'm sort of at the lunatic fringe of of personal finance and and that's a good thing. Um, (laughs) It's a good thing. I would be remiss if I didn't say, I mean, you listen, man, I've, I always am like, I call you the Uber couple to your face, right? So I won't push or dig, but tell me one secret about how do you guys, you know, make it look easy? Cause I know marriage is a challenge, especially if you're too dynamic, assertive, achievement oriented, intelligent, blah, 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 people. And you both are. So like, give me one hack buddy. So I can, you know, step up my own game. I don't know that there's any particular magic to it. Um, You know, we try to be transparent about the fact, um, you know, that it all happens with just a ton of help, you know, with Mm. some pretty intense editing at the day job with an incredible childcare provider who has been with us Mm -hmm. for 16 years now. We're lucky enough um, that my wife, Jody Cantor, that her parents are nearby more often than not. And exceedingly generous with their time. My family's a little bit farther away, but, you know, they still step in more than infrequently to help us out. You know, and we also are just incredibly lucky to have, you know, an extended network of friends and cheerleaders. So, you know, none of us does it alone, you know, as much, 
doggedness as we may bring to the table, you know, there's just like intense and ongoing gratitude for all the people who, you know, kind of threw the rope back or provide the scaffolding that allow us to, you know, climb ever higher. And, um, mm. that's really what it's about, you know, that and, and, you know, intense love, um, and support and mentorship of, of one another. And it's not always easy. Um, we may make it look relatively seamless, but, you know, there is a lot of effort behind the scenes to like keep the trains, uh, on the tracks. And that includes, you know, therapy, which I think all of us should be more open about, you know, asking for help and not being afraid of that. What an unsurprisingly generous answer that you went to helpers, right? Which was, of course, one of Fred's mm -hmm. main things, Look, right? for, the Look for the helpers. They are everywhere. Yeah. We are everywhere. Speaking of cheerleading, I mean, I remember I knew what day and what time the information about whether or not your most recent book, The Price You Pay for College, whether it was going to be on the bestseller list. And you messaged me a few hours after I asked something to the effect of, I found out my father died at 11 and I found out I was number three at three or whatever. I got the number wrong, I'm sure, right? It was pretty close to that. It was, you know, only a handful of hours apart. I was with you in my spirit that moment in that day in particular. And I don't know that I'd ever experienced those extremes myself or through someone else quite so dramatically. And I just wanted to ask, you know, it's been a few months, what's your takeaway? What's the impact of that? Just confounds me as just life in general, but just felt so profound. Yeah. I'm still not sure I've truly reckoned with that, like all happening at once. You know, I'd spent eight years on the book, give or take, trying to create whatever, you know, magic through hard work or just alchemy and good luck and good fortune and an incredible support network that would allow me to make the New York Times bestseller list again. You know, I, I kind of knew what the formula was because I'd done it a couple of times before, but, you know, there's never, <laughs> there's never a guarantee. And then I'd spent, you know, five plus years watching my father circle the drain with ALS and so it was not surprising that he died. It was not surprising that I made the bestseller list because I'd done everything that I needed to do and I, I knew that I had a pretty good shot. And I even prepared myself mentally for the fact that both things might happen in the same week. But the thing that happened that was so great and, and was actually worth celebrating, right, is that... He didn't smother to death like, you know, so many of these poor ALS patients do. He just ticked off, you know, at, at 11 o'clock in the morning in the shower. And what a great way to go if you're an ALS patient. You know, he didn't choose that moment. And, you know, it pains me that he didn't last another six hours to kind of see this triumph. But I was glad for him that he didn't enter you know, um, what is a really rough stage, not just for the patient, but for the patient, you know, who is still of sound mind in almost every instance mm. with ALS mm. and who can see everyone kind of suffering and worrying around him or her and can do almost nothing to kind of alleviate that pain and anxiety. You know, he still had a pretty good life at that point. Mm. And we were grateful for that. And so, 
I remember Jody and my older daughter, Talia, who was 15 at the time, you know, showed up to get me from this little office I have, like seven blocks from where we live. And, you know, we walked to the park and we called my siblings and my mom and we just, you know, drank a toast with my dad's favorite wine because what else was there to do, really? Um, You know, there were no words at that point. It was just so completely messed up. Plus, we were in the middle of a pandemic and, you know, there was no like surprise champagne for me waiting at home with like a bunch of our friends and neighbors, which is, you know, what Jody and I have done for one another on New York Times bestseller day in the past. There was no funeral. There was no Shiva in the Jewish tradition where everybody shows up at your Mm -hmm. house to Mm -hmm. take care of you. There was none of that. There was just Prospect Park and, you know, the setting sun and my family. Well, Congratulations, my brother. Thank you on the record for every rock show you got my back at. The ones you came to, the ones you took me to. Thank you for being at my screenings. Thank you for being indignant when it was required. Thank you for literally standing up for me, coming to my wedding, teaching me about barbecue. I mean, the career guidance, dude, the amount of times you have heard me out and kept me steady. I I just am grateful. And thanks for taking a minute here too. It's fun to probe in ways that I wouldn't over a beer. (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, you know, it's a pleasure for me to, I believe in asking the hard questions, you know, when I'm on the other side and it's, you know, rewarding to be asked them myself and, you know, made to answer for myself and hopefully it helps other people too. Life is glorious, right? The world is a big place. So much to do so much to read, so much to see. And that's part anyway of what drives Ron's outsized ambition. He's intensely curious. Ron is hungry to live life in all of its technicolor and gray. Treasure and plumes or not, it's what fuels him and sustains him through difficult times. It sure sustains me. What if Ron didn't wonder about that album art? What if he didn't email me? If we can hold that gray area, shades of happy and sad and confused, of certain and unsure, confident and concerned, if we can hold that area between us, acknowledge that, hey, we really don't know that much at all anyway. We're just cells dividing, adapting, being, and becoming at the same time. And then get curious, wonder, notice. You know me, Mr. Rogers said, I'm curious. I'm interested in all sorts of things, and I spend a lot of time trying to learn. Life is glorious when we begin to be curious. Friends and Neighbors is a Wagner Brothers production. Download the podcast on Apple, stream it on Spotify, watch it on Facebook or YouTube, and subscribe to our newsletter at friendsandneighborshow.com. And if you're moved or inspired by what you're hearing here, please share it with your friends and neighbors. Until next week, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends. Friends.